This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Smith, and joining me today, as he rarely does, is Will Bushman. Hey, it's great to be back, Sam. Yeah, hey, it is good. What's your title now? What's your uh, official title now? Director of Student Ministries. Director of Student Ministries, who's also undergoing ordination, soon to be pastor. Yeah, that's if I pass all those exams, but you yeah. know, I will. What people don't know is the process of ordination is a very, very intense, often unpleasant exam. Yeah, they make you work for it. You don't just yeah. become a pastor. So you, you have to pass a test with five different subjects, right? Yeah, it's five. So it's biblical knowledge, theology, church history, book of church order, and sacraments. sacraments. And I remember when I had to take my written exam all in, it was like eight hours of typing. So it, not enjoyable. No, it's it's something you go through. So every time you look at a pastor, you know, we didn't, we didn't just get handed that title. <laughs> so just know that, folks. Yeah, there's some denominations out there where it's like, yeah, the Lord called me, and the the congregation voted. In the Presbyterian Church in America, which we are that denomination, you you have to show you know your stuff quite 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 a bit. And there's a real shock to some people listening that we are PCA. Yeah, you know we what's, know that, but a lot of people don't. What's a Presbyterian? <laughs> I had somebody calling me a pedestrian. It's like, <laughs> all right, well, whatever. I do walk every once in a while. <laughs> All right, well, today we're going to be talking about Mark chapter 14, and because this is such a long chapter, we're going to be breaking it into two parts. But before we get into that, I do want to give you an update on my friend Mark. Uh, In our last episode, he told you that he had some tests pending and was asking you to pray. Well, those tests have come in, and the news is not good. Uh, He has it's been confirmed that he does have renal, small cell renal cancer, which is kidney cancer. He's got a mass on his kidney. Uh, he has cancer that has been confirmed in his bones. He has nodules in his lungs. And so right now uh, he has been treated for a couple of other issues, including one for having too much calcium in his blood. And that has caused some calcium deposits to grow on his bones, which is causing excruciating pain for him right now. And so Mark has asked that I share two requests, two prayer requests with you. One is that this pain would be remedied, that he would find some relief from this pain, and he is seeing a pain doctor on the morning that we are recording this. Uh, So hopefully that gets resolved rather quickly. And then the second request is he's going to have a PET scan, and the PET scan is going to reveal from head to toe, where this cancer has spread, and what is the best path forward to treat it, what kind of chemo mixture and concoction is the best to punch this thing in the face, as Mark says, to give him the greatest quality of life and length of life uh, that he has, but this is incurable, and it's been a couple of weeks uh, since we have found this out. Um we have not been recording the podcast because of all of that and some of the issues that have arisen. But I want to tell you that Mark has met this 
with tears and grief and pain and recognizing it, but he's also met it with a pretty admirable and amazing faith. Uh, I have talked with Mark a number of times since he's received this news, and he says that the resurrection is more precious to him than it's ever been. And he's been talking to nurses and everybody who comes into his room about Jesus. And he says that, you know, facing uh, the impending death and knowing that, you know, there's a sentence hanging above your head gives you a special kind of fearlessness. Um, You know, that he says he wishes that he had had all his life and that it didn't take this to spur it. And it made made me think, you know, how fearless am I, and why do I hold back? Um, but anyway, he is super grateful for his wife, Tracy, who has been absolutely incredible at loving him and being with him nonstop. Uh, he covets your prayers, as as would I for him. And um, I want you to know, Mark, if you are listening, that we love you, uh, that we are pulling for you, and that you've got a lot of people lot of people who are eager and willing to serve you and pray for you however we can. And so that's the update. It's an unfortunate one. Um, we've been talking about what it means for the podcast, all that, all those questions are too early to answer. Um, but he is definitely missed today. I wish this is actually, we, we are telling <laughs> Will and I are actually looking at each other because I'm not smart enough to do a remote podcast. <laughs> so we're actually in the same room, which is a first for quite a while. Um, we had been, Mark and I had been doing the podcast over a program called Clean Feed, which allows you to speak into a mic to someone who's miles and miles away. Um, but we miss you, Mark, and we are pulling for you and praying for you. So with that, let's move on into Mark chapter 14. Uh, this is starting... Right at the beginning, this is where Jesus is coming into the final day of his life. He is about, he's going into the last day. He's going to have the last supper. This is when Judas goes and betrays him. Everything. He's he's been in Jerusalem now, preparing for the Passover. He has been preaching against the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, and he's been confronted by all these different political and religious factions, and he has put all of them in in their place, you know. And so today, he's coming up to the end. We're right at the end, and it's Mark chapter 14. It says, It was now two days before the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so this is this gives you some insight into how quickly the dynamics of what's facing Jesus are going to turn during that week. Like in the, in the beginning, they're saying we can't arrest him. We can't kill him because the people will riot. There will be an uproar. Yeah. And this is just not, you know, Mark has been doing things very quickly in this gospel. So, but this is kind of like not out of the blue because they've been thinking about it, but this is kind of a shift in demeanor almost from these guys. Mm -hmm. Like they're like, okay, we weren't going to do it. We weren't going to do it. We weren't going to do it. No, we got to do this stealth, everything coming at him. Yeah, they're looking at like they're looking for concrete plans now. Before it was like they were looking for a way that they might destroy him or whatever, you know, versus say now it's like we need a plan. Yeah, we got to force something on. Let's, let's just do wait. this. And so Passover is a hard time because this is probably the biggest celebration that Israel had 
one of the three feasts that the Bible says is mandatory for Jews to come to the temple or the tabernacle in the ancient days. Um, And so Jerusalem swelled. The population would have been absolutely overwhelming. People are camping in tents on the hills and in all the neighboring cities. As you'll see, Jesus is staying in a neighboring city called Bethany. Tons of people there. Um, And so it says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So what do we what do we know about this? An alabaster flask was the best way that you could hold perfume in the ancient world. And it, women would often carry perfume around their neck because hygiene was much different in the ancient world. <laughs> in John's Gospel, we're told that this is actually Mary of Bethany. And she, this is a pound of expensive ointment uh, that's been made from pure nard. And Judas has a conniption fit, and he's like, whoa, you're letting her pour this out. This is so expensive. You could have you could have like sold this and give it to the poor, and he tries to play like he's this really noble guy, but he actually gives us how much money this was worth when he says that it cost 300 denarii, um, which is the equivalent of 300 days' wages. So imagine 10 months of working for this perfume. That's That's how expensive it is. And so here she is, and she's ready to, to break this alabaster flask and pour it over his head, um, which was really, really pretty amazing. She's, and you had to break it, right? Because it was so precious that you put it in a container that you wouldn't want it to pour out accidentally. You wouldn't want any like accidental spills. So if you're trying to gush this whole thing out pretty quickly instead of just trickling it on Jesus for yeah. five or ten minutes, you would have had to make a statement here. So they were built for with like the aim of a slow drip so that it wasn't wasted. So if you wanted to anoint with the entire supply, you usually would break the neck yeah. and you would then dump it on. But one of the things that you find about Mary of Bethany that I absolutely... I think she's one of my very favorite characters in all of Scripture. Um, she's one of the few people who gets it. So like when every time you find her, she's always at the feet of Jesus. Yeah. And that's something that is really amazing. If you remember the story of Lazarus, when Lazarus dies, that's her brother and Jesus comes. Mary, you know, races to him and falls at his feet and starts weeping. And that's when Jesus weeps with her. Um, she's at his feet here, anointing his head, his, his hair, his feet, when Martha is racing around in the kitchen preparing food and everything else, and she's yeah. getting angry at Mary. Why is she angry at Mary? Because Mary is Just sitting there at Jesus' feet. Sitting there at Jesus' feet. And so every time you find this woman, she is sitting at Jesus' feet. And so while all the other apostles have been like arguing who's going to be the best in the kingdom, and am I going to sit at his right hand and his left hand and everything else? And Jesus is like, you don't get it. Like, I'm going to a cross. <laughs> I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I have to be risen from the dead. And they're like, okay. It just like hits him in the forehead and falls away. She gets it. And yeah. so in this moment, she's actually anointing him for burial. Yeah, and he makes that clear, right? Even now, the disciples should be like, burial? We're yeah. Still, we're still talking about that, Jesus? We're yeah. still on that track? So of all the apostles, she gets it. She's the only one who understands. Awesome. Like, when he says that he's going to die, he means it. Like, 
Everyone else is still jockeying for who's going to be in the coronation ceremony when he goes into Jerusalem and is made king. And they've heard so much she hasn't, because a lot of these conversations have been like privately sure. with just the disciples. Like, I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild in three days. All of these kinds of, you know, Jesus pointing to his death. So mm-hmm. she's kind of on the outside of that, just almost putting things together and just what Jesus has been out in the open about. So it's mm-hmm. really amazing that, you know, the Spirit even gave her this kind of wisdom in this to prepare Jesus' body for his burial. Mm -hmm. And she's recognizing, normally if somebody dies, you would anoint their body for burial, but she's also recognizing by doing it in advance, she's recognizing that he's going to die in a way and his body is going to be treated in such a way where after his death, she's probably not going to get a chance. So she recognizes he's going to be executed. Yeah. She believes what he says, which she's just a special person. I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting her in heaven. And it says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, and this is led by Judas, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this <laughs> ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And in John's gospel, it says Judas, was in, he kept the money for the oh. apostles. He was in charge of the money, and he had the motive, like he wanted to be able to steal it. And so get how ironic this is that he's chastising her for pouring out 300 denarii to worship Jesus. And then like the next passage here, Judas is willing to sell Jesus for 30 wow. pieces of silver. So not even worth a yeah, jar yeah, of ointment. J- totally. He's, he's, he just sees everything about his religiosity is entirely self-serving. This woman takes her great wealth all of her, you know, what she has, and she's willing to break it and lay it down entirely to honor Jesus in a way that, you know what, like, let's be honest, what good is that ointment in the long run? It feels wasteful, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. (laughs) But in the moment, when you love Jesus with everything you've got, it's never wasted, ever. That's good. Ever. Where Judas is like, I can't get behind this. Like, you're, you're giving too much to him. Yeah, you're pouring out too much literally yeah. Wait, yeah, <laughs> in right. my face. What do I get out of this? That's his attitude. And is this Judas is like, I think the psyche of Judas is fascinating. Is this like the first time we kind of see this mindset of his? Because usually he's going around with all the disciples, mm-hmm. just another one of the disciples. He's just a part of the gang. Is this the first time he kind of sets himself apart almost against Jesus in this sense? Like we're mm-hmm. starting to see what's about to happen. Yeah, there's there's no, I mean, other than Jesus making a comment in, in one of the Gospels earlier about one of the disciples would betray him. Yeah there's been no hint. Like yeah. It's not like throughout the Gospels, Judas is this shady character who's ripping people off and pocketing the money. Like You don't see that. In fact, when Jesus announces at the Last Supper here in a minute, one of you is going to betray me, they're like, is it me? Yeah. <laughs> like They're not like, yep, it's Judas. Yeah, there's we no knew other it. hints out you know, there. They're, they're all like, huh. what? This? No way it's one of us. So Judas, at least externally, looked like one of the faithful apostles. That's he looked wild. like he was all in. There was nothing that said, yeah, it's probably him. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty wild. He wasn't a B-team disciple, like, oh, obviously Judas is going to be the betrayer. Yeah, and, and, he, and, the, and the worst is dressed up as the most religious, hmm. the most pious, because he doesn't say, hey, man, we could, we could have taken that money. Well, listen to what he says. We could have given it to the poor. poor. So he comes dressed in all the religiosity. In fact, he probably is the one who's putting himself out there as the most pious. Yeah. And yet his heart is so far. It's already gone. It's gone. Yeah, he does not love Jesus. Wow. So, but then when he's, you know, when they're saying, hey, this should have been sold and given to the poor, all of them, 
all of the apostles, notice it's they, so they scolded her, right? So all the apostles are like, you woman, you foolish woman, like how dare you do that? So they're all jumping on her back oh, saying gosh. like, this is, this is a terrible thing you're doing. And Jesus pipes up and Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So remember how the disciples are jockeying, like which one of us is going to be the greatest, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Like the first time that Jesus honors somebody in memoriam, like like this is going to go on for a long time, for anywhere that the gospel is preached, it's it's Mary of Bethany. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? Like they're all jockeying, and he's like, you don't understand what you're asking. This woman comes forth, lays down everything she's got, pours out her wealth to anoint him for burial, recognizes the value and the preciousness of his death, And then what does he do? Because notice this. Our God is a God who loves to share his glory, not Mm -hmm. by us taking it, but by him giving it. And so he he earns all of her salvation. He earns all of the glory. He's absolutely entitled to every ounce and morsel of, of credit and glory and wonderfulness that his death and resurrection is going to achieve. And yet he shares it with her and says, anywhere somebody tells the story of me, I want her celebrated. And that's his heart. Like It's fun to think about that that's the heart of Jesus toward his people. For people who come to him that are humble, who pour themselves out to love him and others, like he wants to share his glory. Yeah, I think the cool part about that that I've never noticed before is that like it says she she has done what she could. Like, that's just what she had. It's not mm-hmm. like it wasn't the monetary value like Judas was all obsessed with. It wasn't even maybe even the fact that it's beautiful that the scriptures prepare it for burial, right? But, like, that's just what she had. He's, she's just taking what she has. She's not going out and looking for something to give to Jesus. It's just what naturally is occurring in her life, her mm-hmm. everyday thing, even if it is an expensive perfume. That's good. That's good. And one of the—I remember I got rebuked by one of my seminary professors— <laughs> <laughs> Always a fun day. <laughs> it happened a lot, believe it or not. Um, but anyway, I remember talking to him about another church. You, everybody will probably guess, but I was complaining about how expensive and ornate and overwhelming a particular organ was, mm. you know, that was very, very expensive. Undisclosed organ. Yeah, wh- wh- wherever that might be. <laughs> and, and he said something brilliant to me that really put me in my place, and I think he's right. Because I was complaining, saying, just imagine how much good could have been done for ministry if, if that had not happened and we'd have sold it and give it to the poor, which, right, that sounds All really right, familiar. <laughs> for real. But anyway, he looked and he pointed me to this passage and he says, you know, when they built that, they wanted something that would bring glory to God, that would be able to praise him above the ordinary means of the world. Their heart was worship, and now here you are making the same argument as Judas. You know, it's like... All right, well, if that's the purpose, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's a noble, worthy purpose. And so when you pour out what you... And Jesus gives permission. Notice there. the And that's a kind of an uncomfortable line that he says when he says, the poor you will have always. You're like, whoa, right? Yeah, kind of makes it, you not want to work too hard at it. But he's like, the poor you'll have always, but you're only going to be able to touch me and look at me 
for a little while longer. Yeah, they're in a special time with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't have that opportunity to be with the physical Jesus as he walked on the earth. So he's saying, this is an important time, people. Hey, mm-hmm. look at this. I'm, I'm walking. I'm talking. Mm-hmm. You can see me, touch me, feel me. But he's also giving an instruction. The poor are always going to be in the broken world. Hmm. They will, always. Um, which is, you know, not an excuse not to care for the poor. Jesus, of anybody, has the heart that's most zealous to care for the poor. And do you think it's like almost like Ju- Judas we see his greed here? Is mm-hmm. he almost like putting those two against each other? Like we're always going to have the poor because also the human heart will always have greed in it. Mm-hmm. Like Judas wants an excess while he sees, you know, people with less than but he's going to keep chasing after the riches and taking that in a sense. It's an interesting thought. One of the abilities that you have to exploit other people is to use their sympathy against them. Mm, I get that. You know, and so there's books that are written on how giving money away actually hurts people and enables them. And, and that's not what Jesus is talking about here, but well, there's a book called One Helping Hurts that goes mm-hmm. all against that. It's like, hey, this is how you actually help people. Like, it made me feel good in the moment to give a homeless guy $20 on the side of the street, mm-hmm. but that's not helping the overall crisis of homelessness in South Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, there's good ways to put your money in, and there's good people like Hope South Florida mm-hmm. and all kinds of organizations. You know, we work with EMA and the likes. We have the Rio House that is actually trying to do something that's purposeful, not just hey, the American way is, let me write a check, let me throw some cash out, and my heart feels a little bit better Mm -hmm. that day. Like, you know, I don't feel as guilty about my place in life as against theirs, but that's not, in the long run, what's going to cure homelessness. It's not throwing 20s around on federal in Oakland. Mm -hmm. But what what Judas is doing is he's trying to exploit their goodness. Yeah, to take it. To be able to take it. For himself. Right, and what Jesus is saying is, you're always going to have the poor, like, you're never going to be able to solve it. And so you can work yourself up into a guilty frenzy where you feel like a failure as a human being because you haven't eradicated homelessness yeah. or hunger. And it doesn't mean that you don't try, but Jesus is giving us a little bit of a nod here that says, you know what? Like, you're always going to have the poor. There's no system that's going to eradicate it. There's no, there's no level of generosity that is going to overcome it. In a broken world, there will always be the yeah. poor work against it, but don't be enslaved to it. Um, and that's what they're wanting. Like, oh, we, we should we should do this, and we should do this, and we should do this, and we should do this. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, there are things, including the worship of your God, that are more important, which, you know, the greatest commandment is to love God. The second greatest is to love your neighbor. Yeah. Some people might bristle at that, but that's... Yeah, it doesn't sound good. That's the reality, <laughs> that's, right? That's the scripture. Um, that's the reality. And so Jesus is lifting up Mary here and saying, wherever the gospel is preached, I want you to mention Mary of Bethany, which is an incredible honor. And so then you move to verse 10 and you get the exact counter of that, Judas. So then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard of it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Yeah, this almost sounds like movie-esque. Like, it almost sounds like the chief priest and the scribes were, like, waiting for this breakthrough moment. And it's like that point in the movie when you're like, hey, this sounds kind of wild. Like, why would Judas, one of Jesus' boys, walk in and give them exactly what they wanted? But it happens. Mm -hmm. And kind of so begins the mechanism of Jesus' crucifixion. 
Yeah, so all of this is, is it's like God is ordaining all of this, yeah. not just to, like you're talking about, like to, to build the movie tension, yeah. <laughs> but he's actually checking off mm-hmm. prophecies of yeah. the Old Testament that dealt with this. Like in Zechariah chapter 11, when God is talking to the people of Israel about how much they have betrayed him and hurt him through history, one of these prophetic statements says, so they paid me 30 pieces of silver, talking about the price that Israel negotiated to be out from underneath the, the, the reign of God, which, of course, doesn't work, but that's what they, <laughs> that's what they counted God worth, wow. 30 pieces of silver. And here you have Jesus, Judas, who is going to the chief priest, who is willing to accept 30 pieces of silver. And one of the things that you know we, we read right past because we don't know Old Testament details and specifics, but they are very intentional about setting the cost or the price of Jesus at 30 pieces of silver. And here's what I mean. In the Old Testament, if there was a, a, an injured slave, there was a legal penalty. If you injured a slave, the penalty was 30 shekels of silver. If you wanted to dedicate a woman's life to the Lord at the tabernacle. It was 30 shekels of silver. And so what, why, why would the chief priest set it at 30 pieces of silver? Is they want to degrade Jesus. They want to say, you know, he's no better than a slave. Wow. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's nothing. And the first century culture they would have seen being, being equated with a woman as an insult and so he's no better than a woman. They, he, it's like they're demoting him. They're trying to demean him by setting his price at 30 shekels of silver, 30 pieces of silver. And so all of this is an insult, and Judas gladly takes it. Um, yeah, and he wasn't, like, coerced into this. Like, I mean, this is a hard sentence, but, like, you know, the buck really stops with Judas and all this. He has no mm-hmm. real excuse. And he went by his own wishes in his own way to the chief priest to betray Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in his betrayal, they were glad. Like, that's such a weird, mm-hmm. you know, it's a tough thing to read. Yeah, there's there's also, I mean, you got to think, like, they're worried about how this is going to look because there's some people who vehemently hate Jesus, largely the religious people who have power. And then there's other people who love him. I mean, the people who'd been shown dignity that are following him around, yeah. you know, redeemed prostitutes and drunks and, you know, people like Zacchaeus and all these people that had been alienated, outcast all of their lives, that Jesus has kind of cobbled together all of these people who are on the outskirts and on the outs that are now following him. And they're thinking, man, if we arrest him in the most crowded, popular festival and we put him to death, we are going to face riots and so now that one of his own is coming, they're like, oh my goodness, if, if they hear that one of his own is betraying him and we're accusing him of blasphemy and, and we're you know saying that he's sacrilegious and all this stuff, we can say, hey, one of his own came yeah. to us. One of his own gave him away. And one of the other things you're going to see is they want to do it at a time when no one's around. Hmm. But yeah. they don't know where he's at all the time. Now they have access to a guy who can say, hey, in the middle of the night, this is where we're when no one's out, this is where we're going to be. Wow, so yeah. send your people here. So they've got inside intelligence so they can do this without causing a riot. It's, it's really a huge, in, in their minds, a huge fortune that they've just come across. 
And so on, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, the disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. And a man carrying a jar of water, which is something that didn't happen. Women were given the task of carrying water back then. Huh. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. So that he would have been, well, you didn't see that. So it's that guy. Yeah, it's pretty you know. obvious in that city right then. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room? And where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. The Passover, it's, it's not accidental that Jesus and, and the Spirit has ordained that this is the time that he's going to die. You know, even even down to the dates, you know, and the calendar and the Hebrew calendar, the Passover, you you choose your lamb and you come into the the season of the Passover on the date the Hebrew calendar called Nisan ten. Yeah. And so you have to choose an unblemished lamb. That's when you you bring it into your house. Jesus enters Jerusalem on Nisan ten. Okay. So here comes the Lamb of God, the unblemished Lamb of God. For the next four days in the Old Testament for Passover, the, it was the job of the priest to inspect the lambs, to go around and make sure that they were unblemished, that they were good. Well, what does Jesus do after Nisan 10 when he comes into Jerusalem? What's he doing for the next four days? He's being interrogated oh, yeah. by the priest, right? They're trying to find a blemish. They're trying to find something wrong with him. And so these two things are, are kind of on parallel tracks then you get to the actual Passover, and what, what do we celebrate with the Passover? It's when you take the unblemished lamb, and you slay it, and you take its blood, you put it on the doorpost of the house, and then the spirit of death passes over the house, if your house is marked by the blood. Well, now we get to Passover, and Jesus is going to be arrested, and he's going to be slain, and his blood is going to be poured out for sins. So all of this that's going on right now, it's no accident. God is sovereignly setting the story of Jesus' passion against the dates that were prescribed in the Passover to show you that Jesus is the greater accomplishment of the Passover. God is going to spare his people from death, and he is going to liberate them from their land of bondage, sin. Yeah, it kind of just ties back, you know, when John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, like this is what... Mm -hmm. And since we're in Mark and we're talking about the mission of Jesus, like here it is, like mm -hmm. full force Old Testament coming in, you know, everything in the Gospels is leading up to this. It's all tracking, like you said, it's checking the boxes. It's all according to the plan of God. Mm -hmm. It seems crazy to the disciples and to even the chief priests, I'm sure, because Judas showed up on their doorstep. You know, so in, in human terms, you're like, whoa, this is getting kind of crazy and going pretty quickly. But like this is the mission, mm -hmm. you know, for the Lamb of God to die. Yeah, that's John 1, where you're talking about. That's how Jesus is introduced. When he's yeah. baptized and his ministry starts, John, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's exactly what he's talking about. Paul and his epistles will refer to Jesus as our Passover Lamb. So it's absolutely intentional. And then when you get into the, the actual supper, Jesus makes no bones about it. He <laughs> absolutely says this entire meal is about me. Mm. It says, And when it was evening, he came to the twelve, 
And as they were reclining at the table and eating, so, you know, they're not sitting in chairs around a table. I always imagine that. And then one of my, when I was in seminary, one of my professors says, that's not how they ate. They had a short table. They would be laying down, reclining with their weight pressed on their left elbow, kind of laying down, kind of leaning on their elbow, all surrounding this table. And so they're reclining at table and eating. And Jesus said, this is where he announces, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? (laughs) You know one of the things that I love about that? Nobody knows. Like, is it me? (laughs) My heart is screwed up enough. Like, it could be me. Is it me? Yeah, there's a lot of weird humility there, right? Yeah. It's like this weird sense of, well... I'm looking back, it definitely could be me. Like, not positive. <laughs> you know, you, you have Peter, who's like, of course it's not me. Obviously. But but the rest of them are like, I mean, it could be me. <laughs> Is it me? You know, they're all sorrowful. They, but with that, they can't imagine that anyone else is the traitor. Yeah, there's no fingers pointing. So it's pointing. like, they, they examine themselves because they can't imagine, well, surely it's not Judas, and it's not Matthew, so is it me? Am I the one? You know, it's it's this is a really bizarre moment. And he said to him, It is the one, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Ooh. Real bad time to be dipping your bread, huh? <laughs> So what that means is if you're at a long table and you're sharing the same bowl, that means that Judas had a seat of honor at this table. He's close to Jesus, close enough to share the same bowl. Um, We also know from John's gospel that when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he washes Judas's feet. He allows Judas to sit next to him. Um, John adds a lot of color into this part of the story, like we're told uh, that Satan, this is when Satan enters into Judas, when he carries out what Jesus warns against. Judas knows what he's already done, right? Yeah. And here you have somebody who claims to be the Son of God that you've seen do crazy miracles, (laughs) who claims to have power over death itself and eternal life. And he makes this announcement at the table. Imagine this. Now you're Judas, so you know you're the one. You've, yeah, you've just already accepted done the money, right? And Jesus says, man, woe to the person who betrays me. It would be better if you had never been born. And if you're Judas, there's a moment like, oh my gosh, it's me. Like, I, I don't want to do this. I'm not going through with it. Like, I'm so sorry. But he hardens himself. Hmm. And after hearing that, after having his feet, imagine knowing all this and allowing Jesus to wash your feet, to share the bowl, to eat the meal together, which in that culture was like, that was an expression that I am your good friend. You can trust me. After hearing all that, he's just so cold, cold hearted that he still carries it out. Um, in fact, it's after this, when, when Judas kind of sets his mind to it, it says that Satan entered into him. And at that moment, I remember hearing one of my seminary professors say that that's God and Satan are looking at each other in that moment when Satan inhabits Judas. Hmm. 
they're looking at each other. You know, the the great adversary from the beginning inhabits Judas, and Jesus is is looking right at him. Yeah, it's interesting because even like at this point in the story, Satan's probably jazzed at this. I don't like to think from the perspective of Satan too long in my <laughs> mind, but C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book on it, so I guess we can yeah. be in it for a little bit. <laughs> uh, like he's probably thinking, hey, we got a chance now. Like, hey, we need this... We need this guy to die and to die quickly. Mm-hmm. And this is the goal for the son of God to be dead, thinking like, oh, Judas is going to be my way to that. And it's a fascinating thing that, you know, this, mm-hmm. like this cosmic battle is being fought as just these men are eating dinner together. And it's just like that levels of scripture that you look at. And sometimes you forget about, you know, that God and Satan are are, are fighting in this sense, it seems. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a wild step that at this point, if we didn't know the end of the story, we're like, this is not looking too good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God is setting a trap in some yeah. sense for Satan to walk into because everything looks like darkness wins. Yeah. You know, Jesus is going to be put to death. His people are going to be shamed. They're going to, I mean, he's going to be hung on a tree, which was a curse in the ancient world. He's going to be mocked and ridiculed. His Everybody's going to run away from him. Everybody displays their cowardice. Satan's looking at this saying, it seems like it's all going to go my way. Yeah. Um, so like you said, man, he's, he's no doubt <laughs> rejoicing here, but the Lord is setting a trap. He's going to trick him with, by his own evil and overthrow him by, the, by his own evil. Verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And there's so much really, really wonderful. This is when communion, right? Holy communion. This is when it's first instituted at the Last Supper. And Jesus, when he says, take, this is my body, is taking the Passover, and he's saying, all of that is about me. Hmm. During ancient Passover, like in the first century, when, when families gathered around the table, when they were eating the bread, one of the things that they would recite is they would say, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. And so when you ate the bread at the Passover meal, you remembered affliction, and you remembered that God provides in the middle of affliction and that it's free to anybody who will come to eat. And so when Jesus is in the middle of this, and he says, he holds up the bread, and he says, hey, this bread of affliction... It's my body. You're like, whoa. Yeah, what's going on here? Yeah. All of a sudden, what he's doing is he's taking the Passover meal and all that it represents, and he's saying, it's me. So I want you to imagine this, right? The bitter herbs was another thing that they served at the Passover, which represented the suffering, the bitterness of the years of slavery, their, their great suffering. What is Jesus going to do? He takes his body, this bread that he's holding up, that he's sharing with Judas, and what is he going to do? He's going to take the bread and he's going to plunge it down into the bitterness. Hmm. So he's in this communion meal, it's playing out. He's going to be the lamb that's going to be slain, that's going to be consumed. He is the bread, the one who's going to take the affliction and be plunged down into the bitterness. So the entirety of the Passover meal not only looks back 
at the days of Moses. But what Jesus is saying is it's ultimately fulfilled in me. I'm going to take this all on myself. I'm going to be the lamb slain to give life. I'm going to be the one who leads you out of the land of slavery. I'm going to be the one who takes the affliction on myself and is plunged into the suffering. It's, it's really amazing. And then it says he takes the cup. And I love that before both of these, when you read it, the first thing it does is, so he's saying, hey, this is my body. I'm about to be crucified. I'm going to be tortured and killed. And this is my blood that's about to be poured out. Has ever, have you ever noticed that he gives thanks first? Yeah, each time. Yeah, he gave thanks, gave it to them, and drank it, right? So he's giving thanks for the fact that he's going to suffer. Yeah, which is normal for us to give thanks before something like that, or for the disciples to, but he's the one that's going to be accomplishing yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, essentially what he's saying is, I know what this means. Yeah. This represents me going to a cross. I know what this cup means. It represents my blood is going to be pouring out of my body. And he gives thanks. Wow. And gives it away. Mm. Like that's the heart of the Savior. When I, I remember when I was first coming to, to genuine faith, I was coming out of Catholicism. And one of the things that, and not to say that you can't have <laughs> genuine faith, that's not what I meant. I didn't have genuine faith. Um, but I remember thinking like, you know, I, I, I feel like a disappointment to him. Like I've cost yeah. him all this and, and he's so ashamed of me and all my sin made him do this. But it's, it's the, the passages that blow me away is when you think, no, 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 he's, he was thankful to be able to redeem me. He, you know, it's for the joy set before him that he endures the agony of the cross, right? It's yeah. the, I am his joy. He is delighted and thankful to redeem and purchase me, which is hard for me to wrap my mind around. Why anyone would, you know, would be thankful to pay such an outrageous cost for someone like me. But that's his heart. He's, he gives thanks and gives his body and blood away. And then he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And that's straight out of Jeremiah 31. And, and when Jeremiah, who's writing 600 years before Jesus, says, in the day that the Messiah comes, he's going to institute a new covenant. And the law of God's not just going to be written on hearts of stone, but it's going to be on hearts of flesh, and he's going to put a spirit in them. Like, Jesus, when he says, this is the new covenant, is saying, I'm the one who fulfills Jeremiah 31. Wow. Everything is different now. Mm. God is no longer, you know, it, it's not by rules that you get his favor. It is by forgiveness. It's a new covenant. It's not the covenant of law. It is a covenant of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and God is going to work in an entirely new way inside you. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's, that's what I'm bringing here. Yeah, it must have been wild to hear this, because like, we hear this, obviously, in our historical fashion, but these guys, it's like just close enough to what they've been doing their whole mm -hmm. lives, but so much different. Mm -hmm. Like they're like, oh, we, we get parts of this. We've heard parts of this before, but it's like a whole new look at it because they've been doing this since the Old Testament, you know, and Jesus is saying everything you've been waiting for, I'm here. So it's like, it must've been fascinating. I don't know if it left them like more confused or like more <laughs> ready for it. Cause I feel like every time someone tells me something that's just a little different than what I knew, like just a, just like a touch of it. But like mm -hmm. you said, it's all new as well. So they're probably like, 
okay, we're tracking with you, Jesus, but this seems like a lot. Like yeah. this is a whole new take on what we've been doing <laughs> for thousands of years. Yeah. You get the, the impression that they're, it's almost like they get it later. Yeah. You know, when they're looking back, they're like, oh, <laughs> but in the moment they're not, they're not going to get it. So it's no. like, you wonder if, you know, Thomas is sitting around the table going, did Jesus forget his line? He just said that wrong. Yeah. You know, like everything's, uh, it's all the same stuff, but Jesus is giving radically new interpretations and in how this is fulfilled. And they're kind of going, well, wait a minute. What do you, what do you mean? You're the bread. You know, he, but he's been preaching that, you know, this, he's been preaching that since John six, when he multiplied the bread and he says, I am the bread of life. Like he's been giving these, these different looks and they get it after the resurrection, <laughs> which is <laughs> right now. I think they're just going, I don't get it, but I don't want to ask. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're like that kid in class who definitely has a question, but you're like, no one else seems to have a question, but I do. So if they all get it, I think I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, another thing that I think is pretty cool here, and I, I, it's when he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God, that means that Jesus is waiting on, on not only all the saints who have died and gone before us and gone to heaven, he's still waiting to have this wine again. He's waiting for the, the consummation, the, the total fulfillment, the second coming when all the saints are gathered, when there's a new heavens and a new earth and we, we enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb, then he's going to break out. There's still something Jesus is longing for. It's not yeah. This story is not yet complete. But at that day, when sin and death are no more, Jesus is going to break out the wine again. And we are going to celebrate a feast. But right now, I've, I've heard someone say, and I love the way of viewing this, right now Jesus is fasting for us. Right now he is actively refraining from enjoying the wine until we're all together again. And so when Jesus calls us to fast, you know, the, what's the idea of the fast? Is I'm willing to set aside something that I enjoy in this world so that it draws my mind to you and I'm looking forward to being with you again. And you think Jesus is doing the same thing. Yeah, and you think now, because Jesus is in his glorified, resurrected body, that he's getting, like, because we still take communion, right? It's mm -hmm. for us, it's, mm -hmm. it's a means of grace in this, and it's a part of us in our fallen humanity that we need this. Mm -hmm. so, okay, that's cool. Yeah. And he's just waiting for it to be reunited with us. Correct. In our but, resurrected bodies at the feast. But it's kind of interesting to think Jesus is refraining. Like, he's, he's abstaining from wine until he gets to have the party with us. Wow. Yeah, and it makes, that makes me special. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't always think about it like that. It's pretty you know, cool. It can become a, a rot thing that you just go through at our church once a month. But mm -hmm. to think, next time we take communion, that's what I'm going to be thinking about. Cool. So verse 26, it says, When they had sung a hymn. Have you ever thought about Jesus singing? No. What do you think they sung? I don't know. Because it doesn't say a psalm. It's a bunch of fishermen, you know, a bunch of tax, you know, tax, old tax collector. They're just crushing it with their vocals. You know, I've wondered this, like in the <laughs> early church, <laughs> they had hymns that were not, that were about Jesus. And it makes me wonder where do they come from? And there's part of me, this total speculation nice, that wonders if like David, you know, Jesus is the son of David. If like David, he wrote songs, huh. if Maybe they were singing a Jesus original. I don't know. Because when you get to heaven in Revelation 15, it tells us that we sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, 
which I'm assuming he wrote, you know. So maybe, maybe they were singing a, an original or maybe it was just a, an ordinary hymn. But notice again, Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's about to be arrested. He's about to suffer the greatest, most painful, excruciating, lonely moment in his life. He knows it's coming, and he sings praises to God before walking into it. It's just He's giving thanks. He's singing praises. It's wild. So they went out to the Mount of Olives, which is a hill. So if you're on Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, you go east, you go down into the Kidron Valley, and then up another hill, that other hill that you would go up on to the east is the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. And you'll notice, like, as his, his passion narrative goes, there's a loneliness that's setting in. Yeah. Not, not only just, Judas, you're going to betray me, but now it's all of you will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter, of course, said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So when I think of the human elements, like I, I'll never know what it's like to suffer the wrath of God like Jesus did, which is by far the worst part of the passion. Of all the, the sufferings and the whippings and everything else, the thing that I hate for him the most is the loneliness. Yeah, just a total abandonment you? at the end of mm -hmm. all this. And even just like, I don't know, the abandonment that he told them is going to happen for him and they just fought it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, no, Jesus, we're not going to leave, which I don't know. If, no understanding. I think that makes it worse. You know, yeah. when you have a real mm -hmm. close friend or anybody who just maybe gives the lip service to it and, and you trust those words because you yeah. trust the spoken words of your friends. But in the end, I think that hurts more in the end when you're let down by somebody who who like doubled down and said, oh, no, I, mm -hmm. I won't let that happen. I think that is I did a study on this once because this is loneliness is a, an enemy for me. Yeah. Um. If you go through the scriptures and you look at the greatest heroes of the faith, the thing that they read, and they, they all suffer these crazy stories and they go through incredible ordeals, but the thing that they struggle with most acutely is feeling alone. Wow, yeah. Like, think of Moses. All the people are trying to kill him. Nobody's on his side. He feels like he's bearing it alone. When he cries out to God, that more than anything else is the source of his cry. When you think of Job, who you know loses his kids, he loses his livelihood, he loses his house, his wife tells him to curse God and die. Like He's lost all kinds of things, but if you look at the amount of ink that Job spends lamenting, it's, it's this. People used to love me, wow, but now I'm all alone. Now they spit at me, now they hurl insults, now they do all these things and I'm alone. And even when the friends come to to give him counsel. He's alone, and they don't get it, and it's that's what Job struggles with. When Elijah yeah. runs away, and he goes to, to Mount Sinai, and he has it out with God, what is his cry? There's no one else. There's no one else. I'm alone. You have Jesus over Jerusalem weeping, saying, you know, how long I, I how I've wanted to gather you like a hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you're not willing. You get Paul, who reads 2 Timothy 4, his last words that we have penned, and what is it? Everyone deserted me. They've all left me. 
he's he's you know he talks about all of his sufferings but then he gives like on top of all this i've suffered the churches you know that yeah. have turned against me and caused me great pain and you, you just go hero after hero after hero after hero and when they have their most acute moment of pain it's feeling like they're alone in the suffering and that's what Jesus is is leading into. And we, a lot of times we we just think of the the whips and we think of the nails, which the are terrible and awful. But he's a real human. He sees his friends peeling away and and leaving him to face this utterly alone. Yeah, I think that's a wild cultural, you know, because we're in the season where you know I work with the youth, and you look at this generation and and all the stats say you know loneliness, you know. <laughs> is the epidemic that's actually killing people. You know, even coming out of a pandemic when we were all stuck in our houses, we saw, you know, tons of issues that came mentally and spiritually and all of that out of loneliness. And sometimes loneliness is just like, well, get yourself a friend and figure <laughs> it out. Like, yeah. you know, sometimes you just want to write that off and, and we forget that, like, you know, for all of us, the toll that takes on us because we weren't created to be alone. That, that loneliness is a real thing. And we see Jesus here at the end saying, you know, look at this. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be, here alone in all of this. And like you said, like we think about, you know, the wrath of God falling, we think, oh, that's awful, which it mm -hmm. is. And we think about the physical torture and the pain of being hung on a cross, that's awful. But even just like the emotional turmoil mm -hmm. of, hey, these are my guys. Like mm -hmm. they had my back. They told me they had my back. And, but I know in the end that this is mine to face alone, that my mission is to walk this path mm -hmm. that they can't. Mm -hmm. I remember listening to a Tim Keller sermon where he brought up this point and he says, you know, when Jesus makes his last, one of his last cries from the cross, he doesn't cry out the nails, the nails. Wow. Or the, 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 the scars, the scars, the whip, the whip. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, forsaken me? So it's that, that he, slowly one of the greatest sufferings of the passion is, you know, he's, he's, getting everything peeled away. Yeah. He's he's losing everything. His friends, everybody's kind of walking away, and at the end, even God himself, in that moment where he has to pour out wrath upon sin, Jesus even feels that severing of his relationship with the Father in that moment. It's It's haunting, it's awful, but in the midst of all that, he says, you will all fall away. But then notice what he says in verse 28. You're all going to leave me. You're all going to betray me. You're all going to walk away. But after I'm raised up, so I'm going to get through this. Yeah. And I'm going to go before you to Galilee. You're going to leave me. I will not leave you. Wow. I'm coming for you. Even when you run away, when you're dealing with all the guilt that comes with the fact that you failed me, I want you to know I'm still coming. Yeah, he's going to find them in their hiding, yeah. which is fascinating. Yeah, he's just so good. I mean, you, you stop for a moment and imagine the love. He's giving thanks for dying. He's, he's singing praises to God for the mission he's about to go on. He knows we're all going to fail him and run away, and he's like, and I'm still coming for you. Like, he's just so faithful and good. We need to remember that. You know, that, that heart that's in Jesus for his apostles is the same heart that is for me and you. All right, so when we come back for part two in Mark chapter 14, we're going to be uh, seeing Jesus wrestling with his fate in the Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest, um, and we're going to see the, the passion really ramping up. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed your time with us. As always, uh, like and subscribe our podcast. You can. Do I have to say you can find us on all these things? If they've already found us, they know where we're at. Yeah, and I think in modern times, <laughs> you should know where to find podcasts. Yeah, I mean, it's a good tagline. I get Apple it. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. You but no one uses use uh, the app. Whatever the Google store is. But if you're listening to us, you found us. So I don't, I don't know. Why do we say that? I don't know. <laughs> Probably anyway. Mark says it so he doesn't go off like this every single time. It's more succinct <laughs> than this ending. Mark is so much better at this stuff <laughs> than me. Um, so anyway, we really appreciate you joining us. We hope you have a great week. Uh, you can join us for worship at Rio Vista Community Church at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock as we continue in our series on the life of Jesus as told by Mark. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Thank you.